Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American Story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. Uh, this is where we uh, gather every week electronically and talk about uh, issues uh, that uh, point us to signposts along the way toward uh, the joy that God has created and the grace that he's given to us in Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, if you don't know about it yet, the Russell Moore podcast, as it's called, is the uh, the, the podcast where I'm teaching through uh, Genesis right now and uh, dealing with questions uh, from you about ethical decisions that you're facing in your life as you follow Christ, and where the cross in the jukebox returns, uh, where we're discussing issues of uh, music uh, as it relates to religion and culture and the gospel and the human condition. And so check that out, just the Russell Moore podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. And here at Signpost, we're going to continue having conversations about these pointers uh, toward uh, God's grace. And so I am really excited about today's uh, episode uh, because I'm talking to someone who has has written several magnificent books, but one of them uh, is is one that just really threw me in a good, good way not uh, that long ago. It was one of my 2018 books of the year, for those of you who follow that, uh, on the website, and it's called Virgil Wander, a novel by Leif Inger. He wrote Peace Like a River. Uh, he, he's written uh, extensively, and he's been a reporter and producer for Minnesota Public Radio uh, before his uh, life as a novelist. And uh, this book, I have to tell you, the way that I found this book, and my wife thinks it's hilarious because she points it out all the time. I have a thing with night sky, uh, and I think it's because of there are all sorts of biographical issues uh, behind that. But I always notice uh, a night sky wherever wherever we are. And we were in a bookstore, and I happened to see this cover, and it's a night sky over movie theater, small town, uh, Minnesota area. And I immediately said, huh, that looks interesting. And then I picked it up and started looking through it. And I found myself reading an entire, you know, I just opened it and thought I'm just going to read a a sentence or two. And I I ended up reading several paragraphs and said, I have to read this book. And I was really glad uh, that I did. The book is about, I can't really describe it to you in detail because you, you really have to get into it and experience it. But it's a small town Minnesota movie theater owner who is in an accident, and the accident impairs his memory and his his thought processing. And so he's trying to 
get his life back or maybe get his life for the first time. And he enters into the mystery of other people's lives and ultimately finds out everybody's kind of doing that. And so here's a sample uh, line that I have uh, highlighted. The message was that I should have died, but hadn't. That was the sense I kept getting. Everyone was nice about it, but I was a, a living mistake. The notion that I'd somehow put one over on mortality was exhausting. And it, so the, the, the book is just beautifully crafted and written, and it deals with really monumental and fundamental issues, but in a way that tricks you into thinking about those things because you you don't realize that you're doing it until you've uh, until you've finished. So Leif Inger, the most Minnesotan name of all time, I think. Uh, <laughs> thank you for being with us today on Sideposts. Oh well, thanks for having me. And uh, Dr. Moore, I think I could I could listen to you describe my book um, all day. So thank you for that great introduction. Just terrific. Um, you described the book very well. You know, when I when I read this book, uh, there were three authors that I thought of um, in different ways, and they're they're three of my all time favorite authors. And I wonder if you would would think there there is any uh, correspondence here. One of those would be, well, two of them would be Wendell Berry and Marilyn Robinson. And the reason for that is because you get to uh, universality through specificity in the way that, uh, that both of them do, uh, dealing with uh, specific lives and specific places and uh, and to those universal human themes uh, through there, and so I, I, I'm uh, I'm talking about on crossing the jukebox um, later on uh, this week, uh, the George Jones song he stopped loving her today, and interacted a little bit with Malcolm Gladwell saying the the reason that country music is able to evoke sadness is because of that specificity of really getting to specific things. I think you you do that. You really take us into the life of an individual, but also the life of a, of a community and, an, and of a town in a specific way. And well, the I, other I really is, appreciate the, oh, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> oh, well, I was just going to say the other, the other that I would mention, but I'll hold that until, until we talk about this for a second. Well, uh, those, are, those are a couple of my favorite authors as well. I, I really appreciate both of them. Um, I would throw in um, I would throw in Walker Percy uh, as well. I uh, was just about to say Walker Percy. That was the third one. Yeah, um, I, I've read uh, the three of them um, time and time again, and I think I'm just attracted to that sort of storytelling. Um, and the truth is that uh, for me, there's very little calculation involved in um, in a story when I'm thinking about what to write next or where to go. Uh, in the story I'm in from day to day, mm. uh, there's not much calculation. What there is is just a real curiosity about uh, what uh, a character what might do in this situation, uh, what they do and what they choose not to do um, is just endlessly interesting to me. Mm. <laughs> um, and so I'm writing really to find out about that character more than I am to um, uh, expose them to a readership. Uh, I, I just am 
really curious about what they're going to do and what that's going to say about who they are inside. You know, the, the, um, the reason that I mentioned Walker Percy is because I can see in this life of Virgil Wander particularly, this idea of the quest and the, the search and um, the, the, the point that Percy would make so often that a human being is not just an organism in an environment, but is a pilgrim from and a, a wayfarer and the theme that goes all the way back to Don Quixote and and uh, probably back to Homer and, and beyond that but but also Percy talks about in Lost in the Cosmos that idea of being an ex suicide of just counting your life as being already gone and starting all over again uh, with the the quest and it seems to me uh, that that's exactly the sort of thing that Virgil Wander the the uh, protagonist in this book is experiencing. He's he's lost his life in in uh, in every conceivable way, except for for physical death. And he's trying to he's trying to find something. He's he's looking for something. Yeah, I think that's you know Walker Percy's idea of the ex suicide is absolutely connected to the notion of a second chance uh, or a third or a fourth. We all want as many chances as it's going to take us to get things right. Uh, and I think in the case of Virgil, um, a second chance is, is thrust on him. He is not looking for it. He has no idea that he needs it, um, but he does. And so he's, he's given this second chance, which at first feels like, um, like a curse, but, but by the end of the book uh, turns out to be the best thing that's ever happened to him. Uh, I'm not saying that always happens, um, but I think that all of us can um, can probably connect with that in some way. Some uh, some part of us wants to go back and start again, uh, and to to jettison the mistakes we have made, uh, to see our our lives through um, a pair of fresh eyes, which he gets in a very literal sense as the chance to 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 remake himself in some way. It was enormous fun to write his story because I felt really personally involved in it. Um, in in a way, you know, th- these these middle years. I I am fifty nine, and the decade of my fifties was was filled with upheavals I didn't see coming. Although I should have, anyone can. You're going to lose people um, who are close to you during your fifties if you haven't already. Um, and there was a lot of loss, and there was a lot of reconsideration of things I had always um, assumed to be true. Um, and so to write Virgil was, for me, just a way of working through a lot of things in my own life, and my own consciousness that I had not worked through before. It was, it was um, very helpful to me. As a couple of uh, reviewers have pointed out, and uh, I wonder if, if this is intentional on your part, the name of the character uh, putting together Virgil, the uh, idea guided from Dante, and then wander uh, with a sense of so it, it, so the that even in the name that there's a, a play on um, on that inter- that paradox between uh, a plot line to one's life and the the seeming randomness and, and chaotic nature of knowing what that plot line is is that uh, is that intentional or, or was that just subconscious? Well, I think it uh, it began subconsciously. I, I named him Virgil. Because I've I've always had a thing for the classic poets, 
Um, and I love that that sort of guide um, character uh, in Dante, as you mentioned. I'm an English major, after all. This has to come from someplace. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. Wander, yeah, absolutely. I, I feel that we're. Uh, I, I feel that we're constantly wandering, and uh, and and for him, the name is also partly aspirational because he's a man who has been stuck in some ways for for 25 years. Um, at one point, he says, "For for a man named Wander, I've spent a lot of time in one place." And I love that um, even if the, the wandering is mostly interior, it's something that by the end of the book, he is quite free to do. He's free to wander. We don't actually know where physically he ends the book, uh, he, where he'll go next. He's not sure himself. But there's a lot of freedom inherent in wandering. The, you know, the Walker Percy characters that we were talking about um, are wayfarers and wanderers. And in some ways, um, Characters I think of as as holy fools, um, mm-hmm. which which has a great long history because it's uh, it's such a, a true uh, archetype, if you will. Another thing that that really uh, stood out to me in the book is the sort of presenting crisis is one of memory. Uh, someone who has has lost his his memory, which I think I think you made really believable and and compelling. But it made me think of how much, uh, when I think of the the Bible, uh, how much of it is speaking to memory, Passover, uh, communion, remember, do this in remembrance of me. But but not only that, remember that you were a stranger in Egypt. Remember uh, what happened in the in the wanderings in the in the wilderness. So much of it about um, a memory that's connected not just to one's own life, but to the lives that have gone before. And it seems to me that that's something that is maybe a unique crisis in this moment where where attention span, not just our attention span in terms of devices and all the things that, that we're warned about, but just attention span in terms of the fast-moving nature of everything around us seems to sacrifice memory. Wow, I think you're right. I mean, that's nothing I've, I've given a lot of thought to. But um, but yeah, the, things are moving so quickly, and maybe that's been kind of a benefit, uh, a silver lining to the, the the state of lockdown or quarantine that so many of us have have found ourselves under, um, is that we've been sort of forced to slow down. I take a lot more walks now. Um, seven blocks from the house, there's a beautiful wilderness stream that flows through Duluth called Tisher Creek. And there's, there's not a day that I don't go down there and just spend some time by the moving water. Um, and that feels, uh, that feels connected to what you're, you're suggesting with memory and the pace of life and remembering not just our own lives, but, but connecting with others who have, who have gone before us in some meaningful way. Now you've given me something to, to, to make notes about. Hmm. I wonder also, uh, you were talking earlier about the curiosity that sort of takes you in this character and you, you want to see what happens next uh, with the character as you're, you're writing it, which is something I think most people who don't write assume that you start out with this outline full of 
syllogisms that you want to put into <laughs> to text. Of course, it's not the way it works for most people. Uh, but I wonder if your experience is similar to uh, Frederick Buechner uh, wrote about how being a novelist, writing novels, uh, taught him uh, something about plot and about being able to recognize plot. And that from that, he was able to look back and to discern the outlines of a plot line in his own life, uh, which, which of course led to listen to your life, pay attention to what's going on in, in your life. Ha- have you seen anything similar as you're working through with Virgil and, and, other, and other characters in your books, uh, that idea of plot? Oh, yeah, absolutely so. Um, I don't know what I would say about a plot line to my own life, um, but I think that Beekner is absolutely correct uh, that one good way to figure out what you actually believe about the nature of the world is to start writing stories about it. It's, it's like a few years ago, um, I wanted to learn how to, uh, to shoot video. So uh, I bought a DSLR. Uh, and I went out and I started taking pictures of beautiful places, um, including the, the farm where I lived at the time. And I started shooting a lot of video just, just for fun and because I was interested in, in uh, I have a really wide but shallow uh, set of interests. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and what I found was that in taking the world's picture, it started to get a lot more beautiful. Like all of a sudden, things I had not noticed before because I was looking for them through a lens um, and taking their picture and trying to get the way they moved through nature, I started to see the world in much more vivid colors um, and across the spectrum in a way that I had not before. It was, it was enormous fun for me, in part because my dad was a photographer and I started to see the way he saw the world. Um, and so the same thing I think happens with writing, that if you are concerning yourself with, uh, with characters and places and geographies and the way that geographies influence the people who grow up on them, um, then you start to maybe notice things in real life. Uh, William Faulkner said something like, I never know what I believe until I read what I've written. Exactly. Um, and I yeah. think he was kind of on to something that just in working things out through language, um, maybe you start to think uh, about the issues in your life in uh, uh, with a nuance that wasn't available to you before. Uh, I don't know. I, I would I would suggest that maybe that's true, and maybe that's what what Beekner was talking about. You know, I wonder uh, if this is true for you because your uh, one of the things that I notice about your writing is. Uh, not just the story, which is compelling, but also the the rhythmic nature of the language uh, that that is compelling as well. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately, because while we've been in quarantine, lockdown, uh, I've been doing every day uh, reading in exile, where I just sort of share with people. Here's a book uh, in my library that's meant a lot to me. Uh, and and here's why you should check it out. And one of the things I've, I've sort of doing that every day, I've put together a common theme with a lot of the writers that have been influential on me. One of the things we, we all seem to share in common here, whether they're believers or unbelievers or, or wherever they are on the spectrum, is some influence from the King James Bible. And you, you can you can see that in when you go back and, and listen to interviews from Eudora Welty to uh, Willie Morris to 
Uh, Stephen King talked about this on Terry Gross not long ago. Is uh, is the influence of the the King James uh, Bible, and I wonder is that has that been true for you as well? I'm sure that it has. I mean, I grew up with the King James uh, and other translations, but the King James when you're growing up as a as a young believer in the Midwest um, is is certainly that's that's kind of the um, that's the source material. You know, yeah. so we're all going to yeah. owe yeah. a certain. Uh, we grew up drinking from that well, and and so we're going to owe a lot in terms of musicality and rhythm and formality. Um, if you read uh, really anything by Cormac McCarthy, it's possible at times to to actually believe that you are reading the King James Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the glory uh, because, of the Lord shone round about them, and they yes, were sore afraid. Yeah, right. And I think that's one reason that his writing carries so much kind of automatic and inherent authority. It's because we all recognize that um, at some level, even if we don't recognize it with our minds, we feel comfortable inside of it. We 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 know it from childhood. Um, so yeah, I, I I would absolutely concur with that. Um, although I, I have not thought of it before, but, but now I will. <laughs> you know, the other thing that, that strikes me, I wonder uh, what, you, what you think about it is if you look at uh, so much of American fiction, uh, whether Moby Dick, all the way through to uh, John Updike and, and, and others, and again, from believers, unbelievers, um, theists, anti-theists, atheists, everyone else, for a long time, for most of American history, God, uh, whether in his presence or in his absence, has been a major theme of, uh, of American uh, fiction. I mean, the, the, even, even the, the rabbit uh, books by Updike, it, it seems to me, is a, a running, maybe a, a pilgrimage in the other direction for, for, most of, for most of it. But there's, there's a God is hanging over that and in so many things. Do you think that's still the case or with secularization, disenchantment, and, and so forth, do you think that's going to change? That's a great question. I I imagine that that is probably going to shift. Um, I don't know, and I don't know how fast that will happen. I think that we're still, which Southern writer talked about the Christ-haunted South? Um, Flannery O'Connor, yeah. Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy referenced it as well. Um, And I think that that is going to remain true for a long time, not just in the South, but but really uh, uh, all around the country. But, you, you know, you refer to the rabbit books as a pilgrimage in the other direction. Um, a pilgrimage like that can last for a long time. Uh, we have uh, sort of built into us, I think, the, the famous God-shaped hole, <laughs> you know, that uh, was Augustine who talked about that. And I think that, you know, whether you're moving toward it or you're moving away from it, it's pretty tough to just pretend it doesn't exist. So I, I, I don't I don't see that necessarily going away. And not to uh, I don't want to get into Seth Godin uh, always talks about uh, how ridiculous it is to to ask the Stephen King's pencil question as he puts it, which is uh, people asking Stephen King what sort of print pencil do you use as though that's going to make them write like Stephen King. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. But but okay. I would say, do you have any particular uh, disciplines that that help you 
to to maintain uh, attention. And uh, I mean, you have to have when you're writing something like Virgil Wander and the other things you've written, not just a sense of curiosity, but of awe and and wonder that has to be maintained as you're writing that. And most people aren't writing novels, but they're having to, a good life is going to require having a sense of, of all of those things. How do you maintain that in, in your life? Um, a few years ago, when I was going through a kind of a difficult, a difficult stretch, I was losing my parents. My wife, Robin, was losing her parents at the same time. We're both the youngest in our families. And so we, we lost all of our parents within a very short stretch of time. And it was um, it was difficult, as, as you can imagine. And I, I ran across a book called The Artist's Way. Oh, yeah. um, uh, you've probably heard about this, too. And basically, it's, it's a way of, um, of trying to sort of reach down inside yourself and, uh, and, and come up with a way of living with what you do with, with your art, no matter what kind of art it is, um, and, and being comfortable with it and utilizing it to its fullest. Um, and it recommended um, writing pages in the morning. Um, specifically, since you you, know, you mentioned the, the pencil question, uh, specifically in longhand, um, that is not, not opening your screen first thing in the morning, but getting up while the house is quiet, making a cup of coffee and writing as fast as you can in longhand uh, for 30 minutes about whatever is on your mind. And it can be about the book you're working on or or it can be about um, a dispute that you have with uh, with a neighbor or a family member. It doesn't matter what it is, but write it. Get it down in words. Get it down in language in front of you on a on a page. Um, and so I began doing that, uh, and I've done it now for seven or eight years. Um, and that has been incredibly helpful to me in maintaining uh, discipline and curiosity and in uh, being open to the other person's point of view. When I began writing, a lot of, a lot of old resentments uh, came out. Uh, it, was, it was interesting. I felt like I shouldn't be writing this, um, yeah. but I did. And, uh, and I found it therapeutic and helpful and cathartic, all of those things. And I don't keep the notebooks. I don't ever look back and see what I, where I was. Um, because I don't really want to like go back and review some record of wrongs <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, uh, that I felt aggrieved about. Uh, that seems unproductive to me. Um, and yet, writing them down allowed me to release them in a way that felt helpful and has really um, focused my mind and allowed me to say, well, um, I, I, now I can approach the day with my my brain muscle warmed up. Uh, language at my fingertips, and uh, and a certain um, I don't know. It's it's like uh, it's like dropping the checkered flag. Then I, I I hit the ground running, which for me is pretty strange. I, I'm a fellow who writes books pretty slowly, but the uh, the morning pages have have helped me to uh, become a little faster and I think a little more focused. You know, I do morning pages too. And the thing that has been most helpful to me is exactly what you just mentioned, not looking at it and throwing it away. Because uh, I've, I go back and look at journals that I have written and, and I always just roll my 
eyes because <laughs> it's really it's really clear that I'm writing this with a a knowledge that I'm going to read it later on or you know maybe somebody else is going to read it so there's this sense of kind of holding back in perfectionism and performance right. and whatever where if you yeah, know I'm not going to look at this again yeah that's right that's right <laughs> years ago um my brother Lynn and I used to write um, mystery novels together. Uh, when I was I was in my twenties, he was in his thirties, and and we did this because yeah, both of us were interested in, um, in in publication, and we you know we wanted to be rich and famous, and uh, and we would also write each other letters. And I always tried to make my letters really sharp in case someday. Um, you know, they would be worth something as correspondence, um, because I loved reading these collections of letters that, that writers of note had written to one another. And, and, uh, and now I look back and that's, it's just so hilarious. It's so young. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I could talk to you all day long, uh, Lee Finger, and I really, really uh, am grateful for your taking the time to to be with us today. Um, the book is Virgil Wander, and he's, he's written uh, several books. Uh, Peace Like a River uh, uh, is one that is also uh, highly uh, acclaimed, and people talk about it uh, all the time years later who have read. So I commend all of that to those of you who are listeners. Uh, uh, check those uh, books out. And Lee Finger, thank you so much for being with us today on Signpost. Thank you, Dr. Moore. It was a pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Uh, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or wherever you listen. And check out the other uh, podcasts, Russell Moore Podcast there as well. And leave a review. That helps us uh, to, to get the, the content out to other people. And if you're listening on a smartphone, just tap the cover art and you can find show notes, including a, a link to the books that we've talked about today and, and some other resources that you might have missed. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys. You know?